0: Hello and welcome to the second part of the debated podcast's end of year discussion. In the second part, joined by uh, the same people as in the first part, we'll be discussing the Labour leadership election, the EHRC report into anti-Semitism in the Labour Party, the Lib Dem leadership election, the US presidential election, Brexit and what's going to be happening in 2021. I hope you enjoy listening to this part as I hope you enjoyed listening (laughs) to the first part.
1: We are going to energise the country. We need to wake up and smell the coffee. No more Mr Nice Guy. Another future is possible, but we've got to fight for it.
2: Order!
0: Now, of course, um, not only was all this sort of stuff going on with the government during uh, the pandemic and during this year, but of course, this year as a result of the general election and Jeremy Corbyn uh, stepping down as Labour leader, we also saw the Labour leadership election, which Keir Starmer was elected leader of the Labour Party um, now, uh, I'd just like to send to you, uh, William, because I think even before um, Jeremy Corbyn formally uh, stepped down, you had betting odds on this, and, and Keir Starmer was certainly the um, the clear favourite. Was the result of this election something that you thought it was certain that it was going to be Starmer, or did your opinion change at all during the the leadership election? What, what were your thoughts?
1: Um, so I never thought it would be certain. I didn't take anything for granted um, with it. I actually thought Starmer was a bit short at the beginning um, because of the makeup of the membership. I presumed that there would be more support generally still for the left of the party, even though they um been absolutely decimated. Um, so... With all that in mind, um, now I, I expected Stam to take the beating, but I, we had him as, as a three-to-one shot um, on the night of the general election um, with Long Bailey four-to-one and nine-to-one bar. I thought those prices were about right. I thought there were other um, interesting contenders. I think a really big moment of the race, um, just to skip ahead, was when Angela Rayner um, went for deputy mm. rather than leader outright. I think that probably was the biggest shift. Um, I think had she run against Starmer, that would have been a very, very interesting um contest. And I think it would have also probably split the um centre-left um to centrist vote to the Labour Party. Or um <laughs> sorry to to use this analogy, but basically the open Labour vote, um, mm-hmm. which Lisa Nandy ended up taking a lot of, I think would have been Possibly split three ways had that happened. Um, Stalin remained favourite um, throughout the leadership contest. He got very short, I think, after Rayner dropped out. John um, Bailey was always sort of seen as his closest advisor, but there were various moves for other contenders, depending on who took a policy position um, or who got some interesting headlines.
0: Now, Lauren, of course as a member of the Labour Party, very much had a vested interest in the result of this election. Did you think that um, Keir Starmer was going to win uh, from the start or did you think that it was a more open race? What What were your thoughts at the beginning of the, the leadership contest?
3: Um, I found it kind of difficult to call. I knew a lot of the media were saying, oh, it's going to be Starmer. Um, and I think perhaps it's an, a side effect of how online I have been at the time because a lot of people online, um, on the more leftist side of the party, were very strong in support of Long Bailey, obviously. Mm. Um, but it was kind of difficult to sort of say where, where it might fall. As the contest carried on, however, it became quite clear, I think, that Starmer was going to win. I voted for Nandi personally. Um, mm. I watched, obviously, the crushing defeat in December, and she was the only one for me, I think, that was really telling the home truths that mm. needed to be said. And I, I kind of knew she wasn't going to win, but I thought, you know, if there's a strong enough mandate in the numbers that vote for her, um, the party have to listen that there are a section of us that really do want to change and show that we've changed. Mm. Um, but I do just want to talk a little bit, if I can, quickly about the conduct of people during yeah, of the course. election. Because I think it speaks on what we can come to next about the hostility, the abuse, the mm. nastiness um, for anyone really. And I'm, I'm not saying Nandy and Starmer supporters weren't like this as well, but a lot of us have experienced some real, real unpleasantry from um, Long Bailey supporters. Anyone who was seen to be on the left didn't vote for the Corbyn continuity candidate got absolutely slated, mm. and I think. Those are the kind of divisions that are still in our party right now, <laughs> causing all the issues um, and making it such an unpleasant place to be. And I think that was that was ground zero for a lot of what's going on now.
0: Lauren, what were your thoughts as to um, the start of the, the leadership contest? And I mean, were, were you also, uh, from viewing the contest, seeing the kind of things that Lauren just mentioned, or is that something that you weren't, seeing as much not being a member of the Labour Party or what were your thoughts at the start of the the leadership campaign? I think being outside a political party, and I've
2: certainly learned this with the Lib Dems as well, um, the image they give off can sometimes be a lot more friendly and and nice than what was going on inside. Mm. But I do have friends in the Labour Party who would often remind me uh, that the internal party politics, especially the factionalism that goes on within the Labour Party, uh, was not very nice during that leadership election um frankly from the outside I, I looked and i saw lisa nandy as and perhaps it's unsurprising being a centrist but lisa nandy as the perhaps more sensible more centrist candidate um and one that i thought actually yes this person could genuinely you know take a, an election and bring enough um voters together bring a large enough coalition of voters together to vote for the labor party um and with Starmer, I'm currently not sure that's going to happen. I don't actually put the odds of Labour winning the next election um, very high just because of the fact that it's such a big mountain to climb. And I think that the Tories will have a new leader um, come the next election. So. Keir Starmer wasn't the worst choice I think Rebecca Long-Bailey and and carrying on with with Corbyn's legacy I don't think would have been the right decision and I'm not sure we would have had um, quite the strong response to anti-Semitism that uh, Keir Starmer has given Uh, but I, I still think Lisa
1: Nandy probably would have been the better choice out of all of them quickly to jump in there um You you say about Boris Johnson being the Conservative leader at the next general election. We are currently five to four that he is. We're four to seven that he's not. So our market view is actually that he's likelier not to be um, the party leader at the next election. Um, I also do agree about the scale of the task for Labour. Um, We actually have a hung parliament as favourite for Outcome of the next general election—that's eleven to ten with us. I mean, that's roughly what I would
2: have would have get. Also, good that I looked at your betting odds beforehand. Um, but but that is that is I would say yeah, that's that's roughly where I think hung parliament is more likely, um, if not a small majority for the Tories. Because we've got time, and we've got time not for people to forget about COVID, but it for it to to not be the number one issue at the next election. So I just think that for them will be will be to their
1: advantage. Yeah, I agree. The, the scheduling of this parliament does suit the government. It does give them a chance to get out of the worst of a no-deal Brexit and the coronavirus, albeit you've got to race against time, I guess, to do all that catching up, mm. um, manage the economic crisis, and then sort of get on to delivering some of your promises. Um, it was interesting to note, by the way, that JL partners have polled Red Wall seats and at the current state of play, Labour would be looking to take back 36 of the 45 that went to the Tories. So there is a lot of work to be done, even if these crises are navigated.
0: Mm. Now, Lauren, I think you um, would you be interested in saying something about what you think of uh, Keir Starmer's performance so far as a, a Labour leader. Do you agree that perhaps with a, a different Conservative Uh, Leader Labour might have a a better chance at uh, getting you through a honk parliament? Or what are your thoughts?
3: I mean, I think it depends who the Tories put up. I can see Sunak having a very strong case um, if a leadership election happens before the worst happens and he has to start dishing out bad news because I know he's very popular at the minute because he's been giving everyone what they want and money and free meals and whatnot. Mm. Um, So it will depend who they put up against him. But one thing... I think that really does need to be stated. I mean, I, I've been very critical of Long Bailey. Obviously, I'm not going to really be that critical of Nandi. Um, Starmer has been very good, obviously, with anti-Semitism. He's dealt very strongly with anti-Semitism, which is absolutely correct, and what he should be doing. I think what needs to be noted, though, are the aspects of his leadership that are lacking, and mm. this is with a lot of liberation issues. So, obviously, his complete silence on transphobia, his failure to deal with Rosie Duffield, his inability to robustly criticise anti-Black racism, Mm. and also, as we saw on LBC the other day, when he failed to challenge a far-right conspiracy, um, I think he has shied away from taking a stance on important issues because he thinks that they're a culture war or that he's falling into a Tory trap, when actually it's the basic of what any Labour leader, a party which claims to be anti-racist, the party that claims to champion um, marginalised groups, should be doing, and he hasn't. you know, I, I think as you say about the Red Wall, I think the Red Wall obviously is coming back. I think a lot of people feel really hurt at how Boris Johnson has basically borrowed their votes and then forgotten about them or not even forgotten, just cast them aside. Um and we are doing better in the polls, but I would just love to see a shred of policy from Keir Starmer, something, something that gives me an idea about where he's going. Because at the minute, what I'm seeing, obviously, as a criminologist, I'm a little bit biased, but some of the things I'm seeing, for example, Nick Thomas Simmons back in the um, the law that would equalise manslaughter with murder in the case of police officers being killed, it's a, it's a big red flag to me that we're heading in the very wrong direction just because we want to win there's winning and then there's completely abandoning what you should stand for and who you should stand for just to win
0: Lauren uh, or William would you like to, to come back on your point what, what do you think about um, what Lauren said about some of the uh, weaknesses of um, or perceived weaknesses of failures of Keir Starmer's leadership
1: I, I agree with them completely I, I do and um, I think a big part of Keir Starmer's victory was the fact that um, not only he wasn't just Jeremy Corbyn, or he just, sorry, I should say he wasn't Jeremy Corbyn, but also the fact that um, people seemed pretty convinced that um, sort of managed technocracy would be the route back to powerful Labour. Now, I think to some extent, some extent that is true. Um, I think some elements of the Starmer approach work, but I think they don't work necessarily in terms of tackling Labour's structural problems, nor indeed the voters they're going to need to win um, back power. I completely agree, by the way, um, on Lauren's criticism of Starmer to fail to call out anti-Black racism. Um, I think it's a problem that's getting worse and worse and worse. Um, I think, if anything, actually we're at crisis point there was a very detailed report on the experiences of Black people in this country, um, released, I think, about a month ago now. Mm. It got no reporting, nearly no reporting. It got absolutely no response, really. I I can't remember Star speaking out about it, and I'd be happy to be proven wrong. I think only a couple of Labour MPs have spoken out about it, no Tories. And as I understand it, as a disclaimer, no Lib Dems. um, I also think going forward, Starmer can afford to do his sort of tactical opposition to the government for a little while longer, but A, people are beginning to notice this more and more, B, they um, begin to dislike it more and more, and C, um, I know that it feels a lot like um, no policy, just vibes, was a big part of Boris Johnson's victory, but I think the effectiveness at some point, the Tory strategy. Not the campaign, but the strategy. I worry that we won't be able to do, or, or say, I should say um, Keir Starmer wouldn't be able to do the same thing. I don't think he has that energy.
0: I mean, Torrin, what are your thoughts on um, what William and uh, Lauren have just been saying regarding some of the uh, the weaknesses in Keir Starmer's leadership?
2: I think the, the issue about keeping MPs despite saying things that are anti-transgender at at the end of the day and just giving them a sort of slap on the wrist, um, I watched and I was... It, it, for me, gave sense of where they need to be seen doing stuff. They're very, very happy to make sure, you know, Keir Starmer did the whole, you know, speeches on anti-Semitism, responding to the report, everything else. But actually, when it comes down to do I trust this sort of Labour administration to um, ensure it deals with all issues, and especially complaints, and I know we're gonna get onto that, but especially complaints properly, regardless of what they are, that slightly worried me, that they were just essentially giving them, oh yeah, just try not to, you know, say anti-trans things, which which for me was, was very, very, very worrying, especially, um, in the southeast.
0: And just as you um, mentioned regarding uh, tackling anti Semitism, of course, the EHRC's report that uh, came out earlier this year, which was critical of the way that the Labour Party handled anti Semitism uh, under Jeremy Corbyn. And today, uh, just as we're recording, the Labour Party has published its action plan uh, for driving out anti Semitism in response to the EHRC uh, report. Um, Now, Lauren, what do you think of the uh, action plan? Do you think that it has enough of the recommendations that the HRC um, asked the Labour Party to implement? Do you think it goes far enough? What what are your thoughts?
3: So my immediate thought there is it's probably not for me to say because I'm not Jewish. Um, Mm. Obviously, I can have an opinion on it, but the real proof of the pudding will be whether when it's enacted and when we've we've done it, because I believe we should fulfill it all and make sure that we do it all and we should be held to that, whether Jewish people feel safe in the party, that will be the real test. And that only then will we know whether we've done enough. Um, let me obviously start by saying how shameful it is that the Labour Party, who created the EHRC, by the way, is now being investigated for it and was investigated for it and found that we had... Uh, discriminated against Jewish people that is shameful I have never been more ashamed to be in the Labour Party I mean I've been pretty vocal about anti-semitism and I regret not being louder earlier on Um, and I've had a lot of hassle for it but that is in no way comparable to the vile abuse that Jewish members have received because of this it's absolutely horrific and there are still people in our party that are determined to defend Corbyn or stand with Corbyn when they really they should be standing with the Jewish people that have been made to feel unsafe um so obviously it's great to see the robust actions that we're setting out stronger diligence in screening candidates I know from a local perspective if that had been done that would have saved certain people um quite a bit of hurt and heartbreak so we need to see that Uh, there's stronger social media screening and looking into people's histories, whether they've been part of dodgy parties in the past. Mm. Independence complaint process, obviously that is the key thing that will um, sort everything out, well, I hope. Um, Stronger social media strategy in terms of looking at what people like and share rather than what they originally say themselves. And also training, which I hope the Jewish Labour movement will be integral in rolling out. So these things are really important. They're the key components to it. And as I say, I think only time will tell, but it's not going to be an overnight process. It's a cultural issue that needs to be sorted out.
0: William what's your reaction to the um, the action plan and the, the issues that the Labour Party has had with anti-Semitism in general?
1: I think um, Lauren is best place to speak on this, as so she's a member of the party. But I think in reality, the Jewish community will give their verdict and that verdict... Um, will only come, I think, after a sustained a sustained period of time because this is a process, not an event, and it is going to be a very long and difficult one.
0: Corin, mm. what are your thoughts?
2: I, I think this speaks to a, a wider issue about complaints procedures within political parties. Um, to say it tactfully, I haven't been in a party with a good complaints procedure that has actually worked. One of the things that worried me reading the uh, Equality and Human Rights Commission report was the uh, reports of internal tampering and complaints by um, Jeremy Corbyn's office. Mm. Um, I read that, and I I must admit, it's it's too bigger of an issue. I think it uh, speaks to a more broad thing of needing uh, an independent complaints body for political parties that is separate from them because I have seen too many issues with tampering in complaints procedures um, from political parties. Um, I obviously, um, I agree with the fact that at the end of the day, whether these this set of, of proposals works, it comes down to, does the Jewish community feel safe within the Labour Party? So I can't comment on that exact side of things because I think only time will tell in that sense. but on the wider issue, there is a a massive issue with complaints procedures within political parties. Massive issue, and I I do, I just think this is unfortunately not as surprising as it should have been, um, given my experience of what complaints procedures actually are
0: like. Yeah, and I mean, I completely agree with everything that you've all uh, said, and it is, uh, as a Labour member myself, it is utterly shameful what has happened and hopefully uh things will improve in the future um but of course it's not been uh, just the labor party that has seen a leadership election this year but also uh the liberal democrats so um Torrin, what has your perspective been of the uh lib dem leadership elections i know you uh interviewed uh, the the two final candidates you probably heard a big sigh from me there um <laughs> I mean,
2: I I personally think that there wasn't in the end a a particularly good choice in terms of the the leadership contenders. I mean, I I asked Davey about the same thing to do with uh, the 11 plus that I asked earlier, his constituency being one that actually has the 11 plus in place. Um, And his answers were not what I would have considered very good. Um, They were... Pretty much, let's make sure Ofsted looks at it and let's push some money towards them to take some students with additional needs, uh, which we know doesn't work. They tried the same thing recently for um, students on uh, free school meals. The numbers, I think, actually went down. So I, I wasn't particularly impressed by his answers. And then the aftermath, of course, Ed Davey winning by a large margin, you know, and then. In terms of what the main policy would be, it was always clear under Layla it'd probably be education, which whilst I disagreed, um, you know, I didn't want to vote for her specifically and I didn't vote for Ed Davey either, I abstained. But whilst Ed Davey probably would have been higher up my list in terms of candidate, I agreed that education should probably be the top thing. I think, you know, fighting for carers is a very admirable thing to do. But I think for a political party that it's so beaten and bruised essentially, um, after the last few elections, we really needed to go after something like education to make it our own as a sort of issue that the public could look at and basically get an idea of what the rest of our policies were like and something that a lot of people could identify with. Um, and that everyone has, you know, gone through it one way or another. So I think the strategy from the leadership at the moment is perhaps not the best and, I, I don't have any. Um, I have a lot of worries about the the leadership at the moment and where it's going.
0: Lauren, what are your thoughts about the uh, the Lib Dem leadership? Were you in, engaged with it much at all? What did you think of the uh, the final two candidates?
3: So I was kind of watching on in a bit of what's the word, interest, I suppose, because obviously we were having our own problems in the Labour Party. Mm. So it was quite nice in a way to see that I guess we weren't the only ones going through quite a time of turmoil mm. um I, I'm not the best clued up on both of them but I, I know enough to make observations I probably would have found Layla to be more interesting to watch as a leader um, even if just to see what happened <laughs> she's a little bit of she was a little bit of a uh a quirky one so that would have been mm. quite interesting um she's also been less tainted by austerity in the coalition which i think may have driven people away from labor actually if she'd won she might have found a swelling support based on that i think obviously Davy was the safe option and uh, i don't think he's going to inspire many people i don't think many people know who he is and i, I don't think there's a whole lot of name recognition for him mm. um which is a shame because I think the Lib Dems at times have had a lot to offer in terms of whether it's their stance on trans rights. Um, They've had some very good justice policy as well. Hmm. But it is a shame that they don't seem to be in such a good place because Labour could really do with a strong Lib Dem party and a a strong Lib Dem performance, especially in the uh, Lib Dem conservative marginals. If we're looking to do a bit of cross-party working or even pact in the future, we're going to need to start looking very seriously at how we can help each other out to get the Tories out.
0: William, what were your thoughts about the, um, the Lib Dem leadership? What were the the odds that you were seeing throughout the uh, the leadership campaign?
1: Um, it, it initially started out um, with, I think Ed Davey was our favourite, um, and I think he was favourite all the way through. He also went very short as sort of the field um dropped away in sort of bits and bobs because people began to think well how many other people are left surely um somebody of his seniority etc cetera, etc cetera, will get there um with the lib dem leadership um it was a bit smothered by labor's issue at the same time but we did have a decent i'd say i'd say decent amount of interest on it and i think um we also had a decent amount of debate um, around it too. Um, in fact, actually, just remembering, Ed Davey was a two-to-one favourite. Leila Moran was five to two. This was the day after the election. Um, a Hobhouse was 14 to one. Christine Jardine was 16 to one. And that was the very day after the election. And Tim fan was 66. So put simply, we initially had the opinion it was going to be Davey or Moran. That sort of what it ended up being and Davey actually won. Um, in, the interesting thing here, just as a personal reflection, was I ended up thinking those prices for Starmer and Davy were short. Um, but maybe actually there is sort of something to be said for favourites generally to be the next leader generally going on to achieve it. They seem to have a pretty decent record in recent political times despite all the other turmoil. Well,
0: of course, the Lib Dem election wasn't the only election uh, that was going on uh, this year. Across the pond, we also saw a very uh, important election for the uh, US presidency and also uh, elections for the Senate and the House of Representatives. Now, the US election has obviously been churning along for uh, quite a while and has only recently uh, come to its uh, conclusion, lawsuits permitting, Um, and so I'd be interested to see what you all thought about the election as it was coming uh, towards its end. Torrin, if you could start. Um, I mean, firstly,
2: it was actually really good to sit up for the whole election night um, with you, Will, and, <laughs> yeah. and everyone else on um, both centre and debated. Um, I am still slightly bitter that uh, Texas did uh, did stay red this time and didn't <laughs> turn blue, uh, which I lamented for most of the night. Um <laughs> But <laughs> I can already hear everyone laughing. Um, but what I would say is the the polling was out, but you know the the, the rough prediction that Joe Biden would win the election was was spot on, um, and. I genuinely you know what Trump has so far done most of it's just been thrown out immediately. They haven't really had any evidence um, and certainly I don't think any evidence to the scale that would be needed to say that oh yeah, the whole election you know was completely rigged <laughs> um it felt a little bit like um the uh, African general I can't remember what it was now was it M- not Mozambique it was like Zimbabwe uh who came on the tv and said you know this is not a coup we're just taking over everything and it felt very very worrying at times and when you are even having fox news not showing donald trump's news segments because he is lying about election fraud i i think that's when you realize that the game is up for trump he is gone i think you will have biden coming into the presidency um and then I'll be very interested to see what happens to Trump afterwards.
0: I mean, it's amazing that they didn't show the press conference at Four Seasons. I mean, exactly. Uh, <laughs> William, what were your uh, thoughts as the U.S. election uh, came to an end? Because I know there was some uh, throughout election night uh, fluctuations in regards to uh, the markets. What, what, what did you think uh, about the uh, about the election?
1: um so first things first there were plenty of fluctuations but so uh, i need to put this on the public record at no point with no bookmaker anywhere in the world um did we go 97 chances of trump winning I, I just need to make that really clear now because he said that he was 97 with the bookmakers at 10 p.m on election night that was not the case 97 in betting odds is 33 to 1 on um, you have to put thirty pounds to win one. That was never the case. <laughs> Sorry, just something I have to get out there. Um, my feeling with the US election was that it was a wild roller coaster that ended up at a predictable destination in hindsight. Um, I don't think it was ever sort of safe at any one point. And um, I certainly wish I'd been a bit wiser um, to how the voting would take place in the sense I knew there were going to be loads and loads of mail-in ballots, but I um, got a bit sucked into the hype um, of what was happening initially. Um, I think in the end, the market had it and the punters had it. I think in the end, actually, the most expected outcome did take place. Um, Biden won by about 4.5%, which was below the lower end of the polling averages, but... Um, it's still a reasonable amount of victory. I think it taught us a lot about America. um, Little of it good, unfortunately. Mm. And I think it underlined the challenges that politicians of both parties have if they want to fix um, America's problems. I think the one big takeaway um, will be that there is clearly, I think, a new cultural group of politics with its own styles. It's called Trumpism. It may not be carried on by the Trump family, um, but I think that is the dominant ideology in the GOP now. And it'll be really interesting to see who is the next GOP leader or who's the next GOP figurehead. Um, Mitch McConnell will lead the Senate, but who's going to be in the line to run for president in 2024? I'm thinking um, a Nikki Haley or a Tom Cotton, is probably going to be near the front of that pack, and I think we'll begin to see and hear a lot more of them going forward.
0: Mm. Uh, Lauren, what were your thoughts uh, about the election on election night and just immediately prior and and after? Were you uh, expecting uh, the result that occurred? Did you um, uh, did you stay up <laughs> all night <laughs> as we um, as we did to watch the results?
3: yeah i stayed up and very stupidly forgot it's not like here where you get the results early the next morning or sort of you know the next morning i Mm. kind of forgot that and i was by that point it was too late i'd already stayed up so i was just like yeah may as well see it out now um (laughs) I yeah I watched all of it I held a small bit of hope I think that Biden could have taken Florida and I don't know if it's just because I was misinformed or whether it really was marginal I just had it in my head he was going to take Florida and didn't um but you know watching how Trump has completely disgraced himself after losing is hilarious but also predictable because it mm. sums up his childish behavior in office doesn't it really um, and it, it is so frightening to see Trump supporters and militias roaming the streets with guns. Because if that was shown on TV of a country in South America, the Republicans would probably be calling for the leader of that country to be overthrown. So, mm-hmm. you know, watching that happen in America, which we're told is the land of the free and all this and that, mm-hmm. and to see that actually going on is is terrifying. Because, you know, I ugh, I don't want to say it ever happened here because we don't have guns, but you know, it, that level of divide is just—it's really. Scary. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, Biden's got no doubt he's got his problems. And I feel, you know, that some anti imperialist leftists do have a slight point about some of the problematic records he's got. Um, but it does feel like a bit of normality has returned because obviously Trump and Brexit signalled a bit of a, a right wing populist turn and it rippled across the world. It's sort of like a reverse to that trend. Um and obviously not just talking about Biden it's important to mention Kamala Harris as well because she's achieved so many firsts mm. with her election. Um I just hope going forward that the Democrats do listen to some further to the left so AOC and whatnot. Um, rather than just kind of shutting them out because I think it would be really healthy to have some of their more radical policies. I mean I'm not I don't hold much hope that that will happen but I hope it does.
0: Mm. And, of course, um, tied up with uh, Trump's potential re-election were hopes from some conservatives that um, uh, Britain leaving the European Union without uh, a free trade agreement would be easier. Uh, Now, of course, that hasn't happened. And it seems as if we may be going uh, towards uh, a no-deal situation, though, of course, there is always a possibility uh, for a deal. And this kind of um, discussion has been ramping up over the last uh, few days. William, what has your perspective been on the uh, the final days of this uh, particular uh, trade agreement between Britain
1: and the EU? particular perspective has been that... Um everything is happening extremely fast and terrifyingly slowly we're approaching the deadline terrifyingly fast it's the as we speak today it's the 17th of december um the european parliament has said that they can't ratify a deal um, that comes any later than sunday so the european parliament would have to agree basically to a deal in principle and then sort of ratify it properly at a later date. Um, But at the same time, these talks are inching and inching closer. We have breakthroughs, like glimmers of light. Um, For instance, the breakthrough between Michael Gove and his EU counterpart, Marcos Seppokic, um, on the internal market bill um we we have little breakthroughs on stuff like maybe the level playing field um agreements basically that we should keep the bottom rate of our standards in line with each other and go up um gently we have little breakthroughs like that but then you sort of remember that it isn't just about the level playing field or fisheries or even indeed sort of little on the side deals or whatever it's about the whole package um that whole package which we're trying to get through before the 31st December. And when you see it like that, it always looks to me to be a mountain to climb. Um, And it's probably for that reason I don't think we'll uh, achieve a deal, unfortunately.
0: Torrin, what are your uh, perspectives on this? Because I know that um, you've put a great deal of thought into um, Brexit in particular. <laughs> way too but, much. Way too much that uh, the UK uh, might have uh, taken. What are your thoughts on these uh, these final days, this dash towards a, uh, a conclusion?
2: I, I think the first thing is I, I really try and look at the... Coverage of whether there's a deal or whether there's not, slightly because it's a lot of it is slanted in the in the direction of of you know especially the UK side essentially going oh we're setting this date for this Saturday or Sunday and you know that's going to be the final thing and sort of trying to set their own deadline and it, it, so it does turn into a bit of a circus after a while so I haven't been particularly watching it closely but I've I've said from before the negotiations were even a thing. Um, if we're going to get a good deal in terms of negotiating an exit from the european union you really need to start off with uh, an off the shelf option which is what they tried to get the uk to go for originally um something like a canada deal was was too far away um you know it it wasn't it wasn't built um to ensure frictionless trade because canada is not close enough to need that Um, So that's why, you know, I've always said, I think we should have gone, taken the Norway-style after deal, which unfortunately is very misunderstood after Theresa May's government essentially just attacked it. Um, And so in that sense, the government kind of tied its own legs because it it left itself with no no real other option than trying to negotiate an entire thing from scratch, which was never going to be as good as a Norway style deal. You know, Norway negotiated it with the European Union. We are currently almost trying to negotiate against the European Union. Um, And I I think that was the biggest mistake, which was, you know, Theresa May basically got rid of that Norway style deal. Um, And I I sometimes wonder what would have happened had, you know, David Cameron tried to steer this towards an after style deal during the last days of his, his time as prime minister and had Theresa May picked it up, um, because I think we'd be in a very different situation um, because there would have been far, far less to negotiate. There was far more there that was was set in concrete. Um, so I could go on for hours about this, but the, the simple fact is we didn't negotiate properly. And if we leave now without a deal, the first thing I will be doing is saying, yes, the long-term aim, And even the short term aim should be rejoin EFTA, which we helped found even before we were members of the European Union and use that to access the single market as its members do. That's that's where I am, because I think that is the quickest way to some kind of deal. Um, Whereas now we've just tried to create our own negotiations, which I just don't think have worked. So I agree. No deal looks likely. But I think there's there's next steps there that we need to start thinking about.
1: If I could just jump in on that, yeah. um, I, I like the idea of going for an off-the-shelf um, idea for rejoining um, at some point in the future, far more than um, sort of full re-entry and renegotiation. Something, by the way, which I don't think you'd get the political space for in the next decade, unless mm-hmm. things really changed and really went south because we have a lot of people who I don't think will change their mind on this any time quickly. Um, Even if we have the worst case scenarios, I don't, you know, I don't think people will necessarily say, well, it was wrong. I was wrong to vote the way I did. Um, There'll be a whole lot of discourse in between that. Um, Just one thing, just a couple of things to note uh, before I'm sure Lauren has a say, but um, there has been another little breakthrough today. Um, and it's quite important and it comes from Nick Gutteridge um, who says that the two sides have wrapped up negotiations on public procurement which is very important given that um, there are plenty of EU nations that have stakes in things for us like railways or whatever Um, and also in most developed economies public sector spending is like 15% of GDP so that's big and that's another example of these sort of big chinks we get, which, um, give you hope. And then you sort of realize how far away we are on the other stuff. I mean, I've got a picture saved. It's from a time at university of, a, um, of a bit of a political email and, um, it's basically got in bold. This is going nowhere, but we're now going, entering into a really complicated phrase. Then it's going into bold again because it says this is going to be a hectic 48 hours. That's been Brexit the next 48 hours will count but this is going nowhere times 5200 or whatever
0: <laughs> i think that's a very neat summary um lauren what, what are your thoughts about as we come towards the end of the uh, possibility of a a, uh, a trade deal in these in these final uh, frantic days before we uh, we know which way it's going to go
3: well, I think this might be something that shocks you all because I'm generally quite an opinionated person. Um, Brexit was one of the few issues where I don't particularly feel strongly like either way. Mm. I kind of see good points from both camps, but I also think both camps behaved disgracefully, both yeah. during the referendum and the a- aftermath. I think it's a bloody mess. I. No deal is likely to happen, I think. It didn't have to be this way. Um, we are where we are. I think we do need to go one step ahead, though, because kind of assume that that's what's happening and then organise so that we at least have some idea of what we're doing. I don't know if ever organising to rejoin ever is the best tactic. Um, maybe but we can look at what we want to use as a stepping stone to a closer relationship with the EU. Um, I, feel, I feel really really sorry for the eu negotiating teams to be fair having to deal with our utter shower of a government because they've been acting like spoiled children from the off and our media have completely inflamed everything um you know i i voted remain i very reluctantly supported Labour's position on brexit when they could decide what it was and i i do support seeing brexit through because i think it's fair um (laughs) But just I just can't get my head around what kind of government would inflict Brexit right now anyway on a country that is already reeling from a pandemic. Mm. Um, you know there are some people that still think it is best news in the world that it's the best thing that's ever going to happen to this country. I just can't understand it I don't understand what reality they're living in
0: mm. um, now, of course, the impact of no Deal will be very much felt. Uh, next year, and as we come towards the end of the podcast, I'd like to turn to look at what we think is going to be happening next year. Obviously, we'll still have um, coronavirus. Not that long ago, Rishi Sunak announced that um, he'd be extending further by another month to April of next year. Uh, we're obviously going to see a Joe Biden administration and um, local elections and devolved elections as well. So looking to um, next year, what kind of things do you think we're, we're going to see in terms of the, the world of politics? Lauren, if you could start.
3: Well, I don't really see, bar Brexit, I don't really see how things could get much worse. Um, I say that, I've probably <laughs> cursed everything now. Um, from a personal perspective, I'm really looking forward to the local elections. Um, I think Labour stand a really good chance actually of picking up some seats, especially in areas like cities. Um, I would be super interested though to see kind of how the performances correlate on area based on like COVID rates mm. um, and how the infections are in the tiering system. Um, also, the police and crime commissioner elections that's a really nerdy one. A lot of people don't really have any interest in that, but obviously it's my area of expertise. So mm. I'm happy. That's like a general election for me. I love it. Um, and also some of the mayoral elections as well, like Tracy Brabin going for West Yorkshire mayor, um, things like that. There are things to be hopeful about. I know that's mostly Labour and it's mostly Britain. Um, but yeah, I think there is there is a, a lot to look forward to. There's a lot going on, um, even if it's just a distraction from the rest of the stuff going on around us. There are there are things to look forward to. So that That's nice. It's a nice feeling. There's a bit of positivity.
0: William, what do you think the the state of uh, politics will be next year, going into next year? Have you any particular areas that you're focused at, that you're particularly looking at?
1: Um, Yeah. Um, So next year's big focuses for me will be, I mean, first of all, Georgia Senate runoffs um, take place on the 5th of January. People are already voting and voting in big numbers. That's going to be absolutely huge. Um, it might be the most important election we have all year next year because it will decide whether the Republicans keep control of the Senate or whether the Democrats can take it with Kamala Harris's tiebreaker. The polling has the two neck and neck and the turnout appears to be high. Um, if the Democrats were to take it, it would make things very different in terms of Joe Biden's agenda for the first 18 months. Um, and I think that'd be very important for the UK as well particularly given the relationship um, we'd be looking to build with the incoming administration. Um, I'm focusing on that, I'm focusing on the local elections next year, which I'm really excited for and hopeful, um, not optimistic, but hopeful that we might be able to um, I might be able to do in-person things for the local election next year. Um, they take place in May. I think um, next year is going to be a year of two halves. The first few months are going to be grim. There's no other way about it. I'm convinced you will spend January and much of February in a lockdown, a national one, I think. I think the tears will be done away with. Um, And I think the government will aim to make that lockdown the last one. Um, And maybe it might be worth, if people are getting vaccinated, at the rate that they should be, making that lockdown sort of a big lockdown too i i know this must sound awful particularly as i'm mindful lauren has been shielding for much of this year um but if you had a lockdown that went from january say to much of march then the weather begins to turn around you've vaccinated more and more people um, even if test and trace doesn't work by then you should have driven down infections or whatever And then afterwards, things might begin to open up again because the weather will turn warmer. It'll be easier to be outside. Um, All of those little things that will count quite a bit, um, hopefully with warmer climates. I think we can be reasonably hopeful and no more than that, but reasonably hopeful for next summer. Um, This is basic maths here, and and it's not particularly thought out or well-skilled, but... um, we're vaccinating people, I think, at a rate of 100,000 a week or so. More and more GPs are going to get the vaccine. That pace should be able to be picked up. We then use more testing centres. And the idea should be that we can pick up the pace of the people that we vaccinated. Now, we need to be a bit cautious here. You need two doses. Um, we're relying a lot on <sighs> Mother of Mary Sabersall NHS IT um, to keep track of when people need their second jab but if that works government says that by april um we should have most vulnerable people people who need to shield are ideally vaccinated then you can move on into other age groups possible that by the middle of next summer you have vaccinated enough people and we might have more than one vaccine in this um that you would not need to worry about the vast majority of serious hospitalizations and or deaths you, I, I, all I'm saying is that I, I think you could be reasonably hopeful that you could go to see your friends next summer without having to worry an awful lot I don't think by the way there's going to be this big VE day mm. where um, we all run into the street and, and start um, hugging each other and, and like burning our masks off like their school books at the end of a long year or whatever I, I think we'll still keep doing bits of that but I think it'll be a year of two halves I mean one thing I should just say quickly because I've gone on a lot um, looking forward to the bunch of elections we've got next year very very fearful about societal divisions and very fearful about um, January in particular um, because I think even a bare bones brexit deal will not alleviate the key issue for brexit for many which is supply chains britain is a country that for better or for worse and i think it's for worse is entirely dependent for much of the important stuff on just in time we are nowhere near ready for that change even for a bare bones deal, which covers all the stuff we have now that we signed off. I don't think it will change much about that. We, we already have delays anyway. You know, you already can't get um, certain foodstuffs. So you already can't get certain car parts. You already have um, certain specialist parts stuck um, at Dover. It's December the 17th as we speak to this. I, I have no idea how bad it's going to get. And um, that'll be one thing I'd really fear.
0: Mm. Torin, what are your uh, thoughts about political events that will happen next year? Is there anything you're particularly focusing on? What what are you thinking about in terms of politics for next year?
2: I mean, there's so much. I mean, you've got this new strain of COVID that seems to be easily spreading mm. uh, in the southeast. I've just entered tier three. Doesn't really make much difference because I've been in my house since basically this all began uh, with my brothers. So. Um, you know on that side we're watching infection rates increase um we have vaccine rollout which needs to be incredibly fast um in terms of the numbers now we've only got a few hundred uh, vaccines that have been delivered to us so far so that's going to be interesting on supply um we've got the issue that we are vaccinating for the most vulnerable groups. So I'll be interested to see what happens there in terms of any illnesses and stuff. um, And basically how cautious they are on vaccine rollouts. Um, We've got the possibility of no deal coming up, which again, as I said, um, I think is quite likely. And I think there's, for me, very much a readiness to start saying, well, we need to to go for EFTA membership or something of that sort. Um, And then the other thing you've got is Senate elections coming up, which uh, Senator may come back and do another live stream on. But I think that is going to be very, very interesting to watch what happens. I think Clyde will have a very, very good election. I don't think the Tories will do very well, given their um, ability to hold things in England. And I think The Labour Party, who is in government in Wales, will also struggle due to COVID. So it's going to be very, very, very interesting to watch what happens with all of it.
0: Now, um, I can't let any of you go without asking one final question, which is a tradition uh, on the podcast. As we're recording this, it's coming up to Christmas. We're recording it 17th of December. Uh, So my final question uh, to you all is... What politician would you most like to receive a Christmas card from? The floor is open. Whoever wants to go first.
2: (sighs) Jamie Stone. (laughs) Um, Because he's a panto dame. And (laughs) from my interactions with him and everything else, he seems like a lovely chap. And I would honestly love, you know, Christmas card. (laughs) Anything like that would be fantastic. It would go up on my wall there you go
3: Boris Johnson so I could have the satisfaction of either burning it or putting it in the bin
1: (laughs) (laughs) Rosanna Allen, calm because if um, there was a return address I'd be able to send her a lovely dose of thanks back one of the heroes of the COVID crisis um I think we, it's forgotten um, that there were there are a few healthcare staff in Parliament, and she did not shirk a moment's work whilst being an MP full time and also being in the Commons. And I don't think she's taken a single step off all year. So definitely was an Khan.
0: I think those are some fantastic answers. Thank you so much uh for joining me for this end of year discussion if any of you have anything that um you'd like to promote or how people can um uh follow you and interact with you um how can they find you uh, that kind of thing lauren if you could begin
3: yeah um, i'm currently at the minute working on a project. Called labor doorstep which is like a grassroots group of activists we're trying to help out with some clp canvassing campaigning and uh, giving tips and stuff on how to be inclusive so you can find them on twitter which is labor doorstep underscore my twitter at is at lauren 1995 x and then underscore underscore
0: william where can people find you uh, on twitter if they want to follow you
1: you can find me on Twitter, the Cursed website, the home of bad discourse, by <laughs> simply <laughs> diving in at, at c- capital K double E J A Y O V two. I'm at kjov O V two there, and you can well, follow up with all my latest goings on um, via the Cursed website, the Burb app, as they say. I'm Torrid.
2: If you want to follow me, I'm lucky that my name is um, not very used on Twitter, so it's at Torin Wilkins, and then of course at Centre Think Tank. If you want to follow all of the fun projects and papers we do over there,
0: excellent. Well, thank you once again, all of you, for coming on the podcast. So that was the end of our end of year discussion. Uh, Thanks again to Lauren, Torrin and William for taking part. It's a fantastic discussion. I hope you all enjoyed listening to both parts of the podcast. So thank you once again for listening to the podcast, whether you, you've just started listening with this episode and the episode before or you've been listening all year round. We appreciate everyone who listens to the podcast. And I hope you have a Merry Christmas and a great New Year. Thank you. If you've enjoyed it, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Podbeam and Amazon Music. You can also follow us on Twitter, at debatedpodcast, like us on Facebook, Podcast, and if you'd like to get in touch with us, whether about appearing on an episode of the podcast, or commenting on an episode that you've listened to, you can do so at the at gmail.com. Thank you for listening, I hope you listen to the next one.